0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You can
1: host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around.
0: Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Nick Warner served for nearly 50 years as an Australian intelligence officer, diplomat, and defense official. He ran Australia's Secret Intelligence Service for eight years, and he served for two years as his country's first Director General of the Office of National Intelligence. Nick just recently retired from public service, and he and I just sat down to talk about his career. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Mm, mm, mm. visit carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be convenient comfortable Ah. nick welcome to intelligence matters it's a real honor for us to have you on the show welcome
1: michael thanks so much it's uh it's really good to uh to talk to you from uh from down here in australia
0: you know what's interesting is we have a lot of listeners in australia in fact when you look at the country breakdown, we have after the US, Australia has more listeners than any other country in the world. So you're going to be talking to some of your mates as well here, I think.
1: Okay, that's really interesting. I guess it shows how uh, important uh, the US is to Australia and to Australia's security and the uh, extraordinarily broad links and deep links between our two countries.
0: And I think it's a reflection of how many friends I have down there too. (laughs) So, Nick, you and I have had many conversations over the years, and I think it's great that we're able to share one of those with with our listeners. So, I would love to start by asking you some questions about you and your background so our listeners can get a sense of who you are. And I'd love to start by asking, what got a young Nick Warner interested in the world and in foreign affairs?
1: (laughs) Okay. Um so Michael my father was a uh, was a journalist. He was uh, he was a freelance foreign correspondent and and indeed war correspondent uh and wrote a lot for US and UK uh magazines and and newspapers. Uh he he followed US forces through the Pacific during World War II uh with MacArthur wow. with General MacArthur. Uh you know from from Guadalcanal to Bougainville to Saipan to the Philippines, uh, bombing raids over over Tokyo. And then after World War II, uh, he and my mother and my elder sister lived in Japan for uh, a couple of years. So this is immediately after the war. Uh, and dad worked on pretty much, I think, every major conflict from the Korean War uh, through uh, through the fall of Den Bien Phu and uh, and the Viet Minh taking over Hanoi, uh, the whole of the Vietnam War, he was there uh, at the end as uh, as Saigon fell to uh, to the Viet Cong. Uh, you know, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kashmir, all of that. Um, and my mother too. You know, she was uh, she was a, j- a journalist and and an author, uh, and I spent. I spent, I guess, the first six years of my life living in Singapore and actually in, in the US. So my father was away uh, on these assignments probably for six months of, uh, of every year while I was growing up. Uh, and so when he would come home, uh, we'd sit around over dinner and in front of the fire at, uh, during winter and talk about his latest adventures and what was happening uh, in the world. So I think all of, all of that, you know, just sort of um, uh, mm. got me interested in, in the world and what was happening and, uh, and the excitement, I guess, of, uh, of his, his life. And then, I mean, this is all a long time ago, Michael, but then in 1969, Australian forces were, were fighting in Vietnam uh, with US uh, forces. And like you, we had conscription. Uh, So in Mm. sixty-nine I was uh, my my number came up and I was conscripted and I was to go to uh, to Vietnam in a in a year. Well, I was to be called up and potentially to go to Vietnam in a year or two. So this is a this is a crazy idea of my father's. He decided that uh, this uh, long-haired, scruffy, nineteen-year-old kid at university. Uh, should go with him and do a TV documentary. How did I see the Vietnam War? Uh, it was uh, a catastrophe as a uh, a TV documentary. I was too young, too naive. Uh, just couldn't get my uh, didn't have the confidence to do the uh, the interviews. Um, leaving that aside, it. It ended uh, in an interesting way. Uh, The Australian army, which had approved all of this, uh, decided at the last minute that uh, uh, they didn't like the idea. And we, we, that is my father and I, were basically arrested uh, down on the coast of uh, South Vietnam uh, by the Australian military, um, <laughs> and spent uh, I don't know spent an uncomfortable six hours or so uh, in this uh, in this camp. So all of that uh, that trip, that background, uh, you know, the, the visit. I I, I really like the uh, uh, the bars. I like the access. I like the, the smell of the place and the adventure. And, and I guess it's that combination that uh, yeah, that really got
0: fantastic
1: me, got me uh, got me going, got me uh, involved. And I guess, look, a final point, Michael. I think there are a lot of similarities between journalism and uh, and intelligence. Um, and I, I I thought about the former. I thought about going into journalism, and uh, I chose uh, chose the latter. A few years ago, I, I launched a book. For an Australian journalist, uh, a guy called Mark Colvin, famous Australian journalist who died tragically a few years later, uh, and and Mark asked me to to launch his book uh, because uh, his father was an intelligence officer working for MI6, and as I say, he was a journalist, so the sort of opposite of uh, my father yeah. and myself. Yeah. And in his book, and I was just looking at it again the other day, uh, Mark Mark said this. A spy and a journalist, if they're doing their jobs properly, are both trying to find out the truth behind the lies and the propaganda, even if they use radically different tools. And with the difference, of course, that journalists are trying to meet the largest number of people, get to the largest number of people they can, uh, and we as intelligence officers uh, are always restricted to a pretty small audience.
0: Fascinating. So, Nick, you started your career in government as an intelligence officer? How did that happen?
1: Uh, yeah, I did, Michael. So uh, after I left university, I, uh, like I guess all of us, you know, I applied for uh, for a few jobs. And uh, and like most of us, I, I failed to, uh, at my first attempts, as I said before, I was uh, long-haired and scruffy uh, in those days. So I applied to get into uh, ACES, Australia's Secret Intelligence Service, and, uh, and failed. And I tried to get into our foreign affairs department, and failed there too. With uh, with ASIS, uh, the feedback I got was my skill set was was more uh, relevant to uh, to the analytical side. Uh, so I was my resume was my application was then passed on to something called the Joint Intelligence Organization, uh, and I joined uh, I joined that whatever forty seven years or so uh, ago and and worked for a couple of years in an office called the Office of Insurgency and Subversion Studies, so there were just a few mm. of in this uh, office uh, headed by a chain smoking half colonel who uh, who'd just come out of uh, of Vietnam. It was fun it was interesting uh, it it taught me the basics of uh, of intelligence uh, analysis, uh, and I, I guess our first job together, this half colonel and I, was putting together a, a guide to insurgencies around the world, mm. and that, that led on to uh, to 15 years or so of a career of working on Africa.
0: Nick, I went through your biography the other day, and you, you also served, in addition to your, your first intelligence assignments and then the intelligence assignments at the end of your career, you served in a long list of diplomatic assignments. Was there a theme to those assignments?
1: Well, maybe there were a couple of, uh, of themes. Uh, Michael, as I was saying, uh, working on insurgencies and subversion around the world led me to, to Africa. So on Africa, as both an intelligence analyst and a, and a diplomat, I worked for maybe more than 15 years. And the starting point was the guerrilla wars, the insurgencies that were raging in those days, back in the 70s and early 80s: Guinea-Bissau, Angola, Mozambique, uh, Namibia, uh, Rhodesia, uh, before it became Zimbabwe, and growing conflict in uh, in South Africa. Um, and and as I say, that that allowed me really to make the transition from intelligence analyst to to diplomat. Um, and then the second theme, I guess, is. I guess I had a pretty unusual diplomatic uh, career over over a couple of decades. With one exception, and that exception was Iran, and I can come back to that later, all of my overseas postings with our Foreign Affairs Department involved peacekeeping or peacemaking operations. Uh, And indeed, much of my time in our Foreign Affairs Department in Canberra revolved around conflicts uh, that were raging around the world uh, and conflict resolution. So again in Canberra uh, I worked on the end of apartheid in uh, in South Africa, worked in the late 90s on East Timor's journey to independence uh, and then like you and so many other uh, intelligence officers and diplomats counterterrorism uh, became uh, a big theme after 9-11 and then of course, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, uh, and in, in Syria. So as a diplomat, uh, I served in Australian diplomatic missions in, way back in uh, Rhodesia when it became Zimbabwe in 1980. We had Australian forces there then. Uh, Namibia in the late 1980s during a very big and ultimately very successful UN transition to independence uh, from South Africa. Uh, Then a little bit later in Cambodia from 91 to 93 as that country went through UN elections after, you know, the Khmer Rouge and and Year Zero. And then a couple more in Papua New Guinea, uh, Australia's nearest uh, Mm neighbour, between 99 and 2003. uh, And there there was a big peacekeeping operation for Australia in an island uh, off the main island called Bougainville, and then finally, uh, in the Solomon Islands, a few years after that. Um, and as I said before, and that was
0: sort of the pinnacle, right? That was sort of the pinnacle of your peacekeeping efforts. You were, you were the head of the peacekeeping force there. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that, that's right. So we, we described it as a police-led operation. That is, it was law enforcement was the the primary function. Uh, uh, so we had we had. 10 regional countries involved in this, uh, led by uh, by Australia, uh, 300 police, and I think at the peak we had something like 1,700, 2,000 military involved. Uh, and the military that were there to, it was, it was a bit like shock and awe. Uh, the military were there to ensure that we didn't have to use the military. Uh, and it was, look, it was ultimately... Highly, highly successful. Uh, we didn't shy, fire a shot. We quickly wrapped up the various militia groups that uh, had been operating, terrorizing the country. A very successful weapons uh, disposal process. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, and yes, it was was very successful. Uh, and I and I guess I learned a lot from all those previous peace, peacekeeping operations uh that served me well at the time.
0: So you mentioned earlier ambassador to Iran. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Uh yeah, sure. So uh I was in Iran as ambassador from 1993 to 1997. A beautiful country, uh really wonderfully friendly people, uh an amazing culture. And and it's fair to say that it was my wife's favorite Posting anywhere because it was a real country with a real culture, and uh, we travelled. Uh, we travelled a lot. We travelled all over the country, and I guess you know, in a, in a long career, it was certainly uh, one of the highlights. Um, mm. And while it didn't fit within the context of the rest of uh, my career, um, it nonetheless served me uh, well. Uh, Iran was then, and of course remains now, uh, an important regional player uh, and a, a country of uh, of continuing great importance to uh, to the United States, uh, even if that importance is uh, is uh, is not for the best of uh, of, yeah. of reasons. Uh, so
0: you got you got you got lost in the Iranian <laughs> desert when you were there, right?
1: <laughs> I did. As I say, we travelled a lot around uh, Iran, and uh, I was travelling with a friend uh, uh, one one long weekend. And if you can imagine the layout of uh, of Iran, uh, and you go east about one hundred and seventy kilometers, you come to a town called uh, Semnan uh, on the main main highway to to Mashhad, so big you know four six lane highway, so my friend and I decided that uh, we 'd get off the highway in our four wheel drive and uh, and uh, and see what what was down in the, in the desert wasn 't the best decision that uh, either of us ever made anyway we drove for uh, for a few few hours, and the tarred road turned into a dirt road which turned into a couple of tracks in the in the desert. <laughs> We crossed over a salt-encrusted uh, creek, uh, came to a second one of those salt-encrusted creeks and decided that uh, why not, we'll give it a go, and we got stuck. So we're stuck mm. in the middle, literally, uh, in the middle of, uh, of nowhere. Uh, my friend walked out, tried to walk out for a few hours, came back, wouldn't fi- hadn't found anybody to help. It was getting dark and I decided that... Uh, the embassy. So this, I guess, is you know, like uh, the end of the weekend. Uh, the embassy would be pretty concerned if I didn't turn up uh, for work the next day. So I decided I had to walk out. Um, instead of walking due north, which would have got me to uh, to the main highway, uh, I decided I would head towards what were then the brightest lights uh, in the desert. That was a good decision and a bad decision, a good decision because uh, I eventually got to uh, the source of the brightest lights and a bad decision because there would have been a shorter easier quicker, more successful way uh, to have uh, have got help anyway i walked I walked pretty much all night uh, eventually mm. got to uh, to my destination, the source of uh, of the lights, which turned out to be a salt mine, and the salt mine was co-located next to uh, an air force base. And oh no! It it seems that what I had done uh, had was uh, walked across Iran's missile testing range in the middle of, uh, <laughs> of the night. Uh, so this uh, this, this uh, was. Both a highlight and a uh, low light uh, of my yeah. uh, of my my career. It led to uh, the expulsion of my uh, of my friend um, and uh, me waking up one morning to a headline: "Australian ambassador may be expelled." Which, as you can imagine, got my uh, my bosses back in Canberra a little excited. In the end, mm. uh, that didn't happen. Uh, and in retrospect, it's a I like it. It's a good story. <laughs> it's um, a great story. It seemed less good at the time.
0: <laughs> We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Nick Warner.
1: Delve into the shadows of the mind
0: with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award
1: winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital.
0: So Nick, then you serve as the Secretary of Defense, which is the senior most career government official in your Ministry of Defense. So there's a politician who sits on top of you, but you're the senior most career official. I think you served in that role from 2006, I think, to 2009. So Afghanistan and Iraq were a central focus, what was what was that experience like?
1: Well, obviously, such a senior job was a highlight, uh, Michael, of my career. Um, I got to say, it was uh, probably the toughest job uh, that I've ever done. You know, running a very large workforce with uh, with a huge budget, with pretty key capability decisions uh, to be to be made. I'm not going to say it was a lot of fun, but it was something that uh, that I nevertheless uh, enjoyed doing but as you're saying a lot of the time of the department a lot of the time of the defense forces then was taken up with the conflicts in in iraq and uh and afghanistan and of course those two conflicts like with so many australians and americans and others those two conflicts pretty much dominated the second half of my working life um so, whether Iraq and Afghanistan, I and and indeed Pakistan, I would uh, travel there in those days twice a year. Maybe I did that for ten years or more. Mm. Uh, mm. Obviously, made a lot of friends, made a lot of contacts. Um, it was it was fascinating. It was uh, it was worrying, and, uh, and I've got to say that I I have some regrets uh, about that time and those conflicts. Uh, and especially about the policies that uh, we, and I mean the plural we, you know, all of us uh, yeah, follow. Right. And you know this. I talked to many American intelligence officials and uh, defense officials and diplomats over the years uh, who, of course, shared those concerns with me uh, at the time.
0: Yeah, Including me. So, Nick, how did you end up as the head of Australia's Secret Intelligence Service?
1: So, look, it's, it's not all that... Unusual for a former diplomat uh, to head Australia's secret intelligence service. Uh, my predecessor, who you also know, David Irvin, had done the same thing. In fact, he and I had both been high commissioners or ambassadors, if you like, in uh, in Papua New Guinea beforehand. Um, but I also had had by that time fifteen years of experience uh, in a number of intelligence uh, organisations, and. And I guess this is a bit different uh, to to many diplomats, uh, because of my the nature of my my postings overseas, uh, Solomon Islands, um, some time in in Iraq looking for an Australian hostage, Bougainville. I had used intelligence operationally um, to achieve outcomes. Uh, mm. so, I, so I had both a understanding of the world, which is pretty important if you're uh, involved in or heading up a secret intelligence service, uh, and I had some intelligence background and operational um, uh, background as as well. So I think it was the combination of uh, those three elements that uh, uh, allowed the government, took the government to make the decision to appoint me. So you loved
0: being the director of ACES, right? Sure.
1: Why not? Great job! One of the great jobs.
0: And and what what makes it so great? And I know the answer to that, but but for my listeners,
1: I think you know as well as I know it. Uh, look, so I did this job for over eight years. Uh, I think that makes me close to one of the serv- longest serving heads of uh, of our secret intelligence uh, service. Why why did I love it so much? The, these sorts of agencies attract the best and brightest. Uh, so great people with, uh, with fantastic skill sets, uh, real and broad interests, a dedication to, uh, to the job, the sort of work these agencies do, uh, ACES did, uh, builds a very strong, close uh, culture. Then there's the great partnerships, you know, including with, uh, with uh, the Five Eyes, with CIA, with MI6, uh, and a whole bunch of uh, of other services around the world in these jobs, as you know, Michael, better than i do uh, you you can and you do make a real difference, and that real difference can be almost on a on a daily basis uh, yeah. it 's practical yeah. it 's hands on it 's exciting it 's important. There's great camaraderie
0: to keep the time in the Iran desert kind of relevant here. You also, when you were the head of ACES, you got into a little trouble with the with the Philippine president, right? Can you talk about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, so th- there's not much I can say about the the, the context there, apart from uh, one of our former prime ministers uh, has written a little bit about uh, about this. So. We Australia helped uh, the Philippines uh, armed forces and intelligence services when uh, ISIS-affiliated terrorist groups in the southern Philippines took over and held uh, for a long time uh, a city called Marawi. So we we provided some pretty significant uh, support. In fact, the Philippines military have described it as game-changing. So. I went to the Philippines. I had a, a long uh, conversation with President Duterte and his national security uh, cabinet, and then at the end, he asked whether I could uh, I could do um, his sort of uh, his his fist bump for a, for a photograph, and I made the mistake of uh, of agreeing to, uh, to do that. So the next day I was, overnight uh, I flew back to to Australia. I got in a plane, small plane out of Sydney to fly back to uh, to Canberra. It's early in the morning. Sitting next to me is, uh, was a, a guy with uh, one of our newspapers uh, and about a quarter of the front page of the newspaper was a photo of me and President Duterte doing his uh, fist bump. The guy kept turning to me, looking at the, looking at me, looking at the photo, trying to work out if this was the same person. Uh, so this this too was a uh, a low light of my uh, career. It didn't go down all that well with uh, with my boss, the foreign minister. Uh, but in retrospect, I like the story.
0: Yeah, no, it's
1: great. <laughs> so uh, I, we, I, s- I, in, in, you know, Michael. Have- in retrospect, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have agreed to uh, to the photo. Of <laughs> But uh, we had had such a, a good and important conversation, the president and I, I just sort yeah. of felt I couldn't say no.
0: So Nick, then you you were asked to serve as your country's first director general of national intelligence. Is that a similar role to RDNI? How did you think about that job? Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Y- yeah, sure. Um, so it's it's very similar to uh, to. ODNI, um, but ma- but maybe a little bit of context before I get to uh, to those uh, similarities. So so our intelligence structures, Australia's and the US, they're they're similar, uh, but they're also different. And I think a a useful and interesting starting point uh, for your listeners is to go back a long time, to go back to 1975, when one of the most important reviews of the Australian intelligence uh, community and its structures was being undertaken over a number of years by uh, a judge called uh, Robert Hope. So this is 1975 in in the US, I think, Michael, it's called the Year of Intelligence with the church mm. committee conducting some pretty far reaching hearings into CIA yes. activities. Not the best of times for the CIA. Right um so hope goes to uh to to washington in the midst of uh, of this uh has great access uh vice president rockefeller uh sees him church sees him and your cia director Wilton colby uh, sees him as well so one day he's sitting in langley in your headquarters uh having lunch with colby and and colby's got the radio on because james jesus angleton is giving evidence to uh, to the church committee public evidence uh, and he said publicly what he had apparently previously told a closed session of the church committee and this is what he said it is inconceivable that a secret arm secret intelligence arm of the government should have to comply with all the overt orders of government now that had a had a important impact on hope Uh, but what also had an important impact on HOPE was uh, the, the superb work done by the analytical side of CIA. So this visit was crucially important in shaping HOPE's view that Australia needed a central intelligence agency but needed one that would be very different to the CIA, one focused on intelligence assessment and coordination of the community, while leaving collection and covert operations to a separate organisation and with all this clearly defined by missions uh, and by constraints, if you you like. So Hopes, this is way back in the mid-70s, Hopes' review led in time to the formation of the Office of National Assessments, which had analytical function but also a very limited coordination uh, mandate, that's not what Hope had wanted. He'd wanted a stronger integration coordination function. But that didn't come until, really, until just over three years ago when another review led to the transition of ONA, the Office of National Assessments, to the Office of National Intelligence. And the Office of National Intelligence is pretty much... The counterpart with uh, with ODNI. Now, ONI is obviously a lot smaller uh, than ODNI. I'd argue we're probably therefore more nimble uh, than you are, uh, or ODNI is. But we do analysis and we do enterprise management, so we do the integration and coordination of uh, of Australia's ten intelligence. Uh, agencies and and entities now if i look back at the formation of uh odni uh not always uh, you know a happy successful uh process in those early years right but when i look at it now i think it's it's gone through an evolutionary process that is it takes time to build um trust and it takes time to build the structures and it takes time to build the processes your friend and mine Jim Clapper, I think, did a, a brilliant job. Uh, Dan Coates, uh, in difficult cir- circumstances, did what he could. Uh, and I think, you know, you're really placed well placed now with Avril Haines uh, following in in Jim's footsteps. But the point I'm trying to make is we're at the beginning of an evolutionary process mm. that you've mm. been at now for, I don't know, what is it, 20, 20 years, I guess.
0: Yeah. So mm. a lot of
1: similarities. Uh, A lot of differences, uh, and we've learned a lot from you, both what works well uh, and what didn't work so well.
0: So, Nick, let me ask you just one question about the business of intelligence, and it's: I'd love to get you to comment a bit on the relationship between the Australian and the U.S. intelligence communities. Obviously, anybody listening to this conversation between us has figured out already that we've known each other a long time, that we get along well, that we're friends. But could you talk about that a little bit and maybe put it in the broader context of the security relationship between the two countries?
1: Yeah, well, Michael, you know how close uh, we we are, very close. Uh, but you're sure, let's start with the overall relationship between uh, two between our two countries, and I think they're they're probably two important pieces of uh, of context of historical context here. Uh, firstly, Australian forces, armed forces, have fought with US forces in every major conflict over the past 100 years. Our former ambassador to uh, to the US, uh, Joe Hockey, uh, called this 100 years of mateship, uh, and 100 years of mateship was celebrated uh, by our countries, by our... Officials by your President and our Prime Minister uh, a year or two ago. Secondly, and I think this is important and, and interesting, 70 years ago this year, this September, Australia, New Zealand and the US signed the ANZUS Treaty. Uh, the ANZUS Treaty aims to protect the security of the Pacific. It's a uh, um, non-binding collective security agreement to cooperate on military matters in the Pacific region. If you like, it's a commitment to come to each other's aid uh, at the worst of times, to consult uh, and, to, and to act. That's, that's the context. That's the history of, uh, yeah. of our relationship. Yeah. So we've been working together. We've been fighting together. We've been sharing intelligence together for a very, very long time. And in all of these relationships, uh, you need trust. Uh, and I would argue that while while the United States uh, may have uh, more important partners, in a sense, uh, than Australia, uh, you don't have a more trusting partner. And I'd argue mm-hmm. that is the case uh, not only in the broader national security sense, it's also true in the intelligence relationship. Yeah.
0: So, Nick, I had a whole bunch of additional questions on kind of the substantive issues of the day that we were going to talk about. Um, you know, China at the top of the list, but unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. You know, having that absolutely fascinating discussion about your career so what i would love to do is you know maybe a couple of months down the road is to get you back on the program and we can actually talk about how you see the issues of the day um because i know my listeners would be would be very interested but thank you so much for joining us it's been a great discussion and um i'm sure you the many many listeners we have in australia will will get a kick out of this as well so thank you so much for joining us
1: michael thank you it's been a pleasure
0: That was Nick Warner. I'm Micah Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom...